Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, America. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Lisa Stewart. Cliff Stewart is on his way, but we're going to get him on the phones here in a second. And then also joining us is our special contributing analyst, Exoneree Lamont Banks. How's everyone doing this evening? Pretty doing, good. Doing great, Sam. How are you? I'm doing great. Do we have Cliff? Yep, I'm here doing good. A few minutes out, I'll be joining you guys in studio shortly. Excellent, excellent. Our phone number this evening is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. And we often have to remind our listeners that we are not attorneys, and a Just Cause Coast to Coast does not provide legal advice, so please contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by the callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast to coast. But as always, thank you for tuning in to uh, the program this evening and choosing to spend time with us as we talk about uh, the matters of uh, the judiciary uh, in the United States and and a lot of the problems and the injustice that we experience uh, all the time. On the program this evening, uh, we're going to be talking about restoring relationships after exoneration and so we got a couple of guests that are going to be joining us we're going to have joyce king uh, joining us from uh, texas and then we're also going to have a young lady uh joining us who is uh fighting for the exoneration of her uh, of her husband and that'll be ashley marie long and so she'll be joining us a little bit later as well um as far as uh let's let's talk a little bit about the irp6 you know the other evening uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the the great news of uh, the case being uh, submitted to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. I mean that that's just uh, excellent news there. That is awesome. And uh, and and one of the things I know Lamont you were sharing with us as far as you know as far as making it clear for our listeners what does that really mean? Well, what it means is is that the Supreme Court of the United States felt as a result of the writ of certiorari is what they call it, uh, presented by Gwendolyn Solomon, uh, the attorney uh, on record here on the appellate process, uh, that there was enough information in that writ of cert um, that caused the Supreme Court to take pause and say, we have to stop and take a look here. Uh, that, that speaks volumes because uh, in most cases, uh, the court system, how it's set up here in the United States, is set up not to challenge, if you will, the brethren of each uh, of, of the judicial system uh, as far as their, uh, their colleagues, uh, the appellate judges, the district judges, county judges. It's kind of a brotherhood, if you will. But that usually stops normally, uh, you would think, at the Supreme Court level. That, that's where it kind of breaks off into the, to the uh, information where the Supreme Court says we are constitutional if you will, activists. I mean, they they enforce the Constitution. And when there's issues here, it has to be of such a level that it is blatant, uh, blatantly clear that something is absolutely wrong here. And that's the magnitude of it, I believe. And uh, 
Uh, again, it speaks volumes for that writ, and that writ had to, I mean, you're talking about a long process. You're talking about a very tedious process um, done by attorneys when they present to that, and there are so many restrictions. There are so many guidelines uh, that you have to follow in, in presenting that writ of search. So uh, it, it speaks volumes. And, and, you know, we have to give a shout-out to uh, Attorney Gwendolyn Solomon, uh, who is representing the IRP6 uh, she uh, did a stellar job on this, uh, and, and, you know, she did it all by herself. Uh, we're talking something that after a, a decision is made uh, at the lower court, I believe attorneys have like 90 days or something to that effect to, to make these types of filings. And she worked this thing, I mean, sleepless nights, and she got it submitted in 18 days. Now, Cliff, I want to bring you in on that because I know you had a meeting today and, and, uh, and just some folks were talking about this. Uh, what did you hear today uh, regarding the, the process, Cliff, when it comes to you know, making a, uh, uh, filing a motion before the uh, Supreme Court? Yeah, just uh, really to add on to what Lamont was saying is that not only is the process tedious, but it has to be, the procedure has to be followed to the letter. I mean, anything that's found that's uh, outside the realms of, of the process being, they will throw it out. And if anyone um, has ever seen a petition for a writ of cert, I mean, this is a, this is a, a book. It's a, it looks like a novel. It's printed. It's bound. It's uh, presented to the Supreme Court justices. And talking to, um, you know, a friend of mine today, and, and uh, he said when he first got the news, he called up his attorney that's been his longtime attorney for, you know, over 20 years and, and asked, you know, what exactly does it mean when, uh, when you get something back from this from the Supreme Court saying it's been docketed? And from the information he's given me, uh, she's telling him that that is beyond major, that it, it, it not only speaks volumes to the fact that the Supreme Court found uh, not just that there's that there uh, that the procedure was done correctly, but that there the case has merit. The case yeah. has merit to be seen by the Supreme Court, and that the issues that are being brought up by Attorney Solomon, that they have merit that the Supreme Court will review. And this attorney also said, for an attorney not to be a very senior attorney, to be someone that is, uh, you know, versed in the law for years and decades, and, you know, a quarter century or things like that for the, the first time that uh, for an attorney to present it to the Supreme Court and for them to turn around and accept that with no procedural error, uh, it speaks volumes and extreme volumes to the fact that the Supreme Court is interested in what's going on here. And uh, I also was told that one of the DAs in, in the area where in Denver County uh, Arapahoe County, rather, I'm sorry, that the DA there that's been practicing for 35 years put in a petition for a writ of cert to the Supreme Court on a civil matter and got it kicked back for procedural error. Now, you're talking about somebody who's been practicing law 35 years. This is what they do for a living. And to, to, to have them, to have that information, 
I mean, the person that I was talking to when I when I told him how long, you know, Gwendolyn Solomon had been out of law school, that this is her first time, uh, you know, writing a petition for a real search, that you have to get a sign-off on two senior attorneys to even be able to present it. I mean, he just bucked his eyes and scratched his head and said, you guys don't, I mean, this, this had to make her feel like, you know, she has, she's put everything out there that she can for the IRP6 and, and their families that, you know, she, she put her heart on the line and she put everything into it that she had. And the fact that the Supreme Court has docketed speaks to that. And I thought that was incredible news. And uh, Attorney Solomon has only been out of law school, what, like seven years? Seven years. Yeah. yeah. Seven years. And so that and, is, you know, he, he had asked me, he said, he said, well, you know, did, uh, did you guys find some senior attorney that used to write in these uh, writs of cert, you know, somebody who's familiar with the process and knows how to do it? I mean, how did you get it turned around so fast, and how did you get a response from the Supreme Court? I said, no, this is Attorney Solomon who has been working on the appeal for the IRP6 pro bono. Uh, she's always been there and believing in them, and she wrote it up in 17 days. And he said, he said, she, I know that when she got that information back, she had to sit down and cry. And I told her, I said, I said, yeah, I said she cried like a baby because she did, she is not experienced in this, but to know that she got this accomplished for the IRP six, it it speaks volumes. Uh, to them, to her, to her tenacity, to her uh, passion for the case, and it speaks volumes to the family and also to a just cause that you know we've been in the fight together, and she has been there the whole time uh, fighting for these men, and it's much appreciated, and uh, we can't say enough about what she's done. And and uh, Lisa, the other evening, she shared some uh, statistics with us regarding uh, how often or or what the the stat is as far as getting uh, to that level and and getting a case heard by the Supreme Court. So, Lisa, what did you find? Yep, that in 2010 there were 5,910 positions, I mean, I'm sorry, petitions for writ of cert filed with the Supreme Court. The cert was granted for only 165 of those cases, which is a success rate of only 2.8%. And of that 2.8%, only 1.8 are criminal cases. Wow. That is huge. That is huge. And then, we, and you have to reflect back on, you know, the other evening we had uh, Andrew Craig on, and Andrew Craig is the director of uh, of the Justice Integrity Project. Uh, he is an attorney as well as a a writer, an author, a journalist, and he was on the program sharing information. He's based out of Washington D.C. and uh, and even in his reflection on the IRP six case, he was talking about, uh, you know, the uh, Supreme Court, and he he was also previously a a uh, clerk for a federal judge, and so he he shared with us how they look for uh, irregularities in cases, and if a case ever had irregularities, the IRP six case has irregularities. I mean, Definitely. when you look at all the points that were under appeal, the Fifth Amendment violation, the the speedy trial violation, not allowing expert witnesses to testify, uh, and then the 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 big one the transcript missing and uh, when Judge Arguello uh, compelled the IRP six and uh, to take the witness stand and and Kendrick Barnes ended up taking the witness stand but she violated their Fifth Amendment right now the problem with this is that you have Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch 
uh, who was in who was at this sidebar conference where this incident occurred. You have Samitha Hazra, who was also uh, an assistant U.S. attorney um, in, in the uh, uh, U.S. attorney's office out of Denver. She was at this sidebar, I believe, and neither one of them have filed an affidavit or stepped forward to say what they heard during that uh, sidebar conference. And then their boss, uh, U.S. Attorney John Walsh in Denver, uh, he has not uh, done anything at all uh, regarding that situation either. I mean, even when you go all the way back to when the guys, uh, when the IRP-6 uh, submitted a proffer to his office uh, to explain, you know, what IRP was doing, what IRP Solutions was all about, and, uh, and nothing came of that. So there are a lot of people in, this, uh, in, in the Denver district who have done nothing uh, regarding this case. But uh, when you, again, going back to the missing transcript, and Judge Arguello had a conversation with uh, court reporter Darlene Martinez where it was revealed that, okay, during that hearing, during that period, there were 200 pages of transcript. The guys asked for the unedited version. Now, we did receive transcripts uh, related to uh, what occurred that day, but the sidebar conference has still not been produced. Yet we've done some analysis based on the civil court that was uh, the civil case that was held in Judge Jackson's court where we sued for the transcript. And some of the uh, exhibits that were provided there clearly display that something um, crooked happened. There's another no word you can use. Something crooked happened. He has a screenshot in the exhibits that had a timestamp on the side that showed from 9.54 a.m. to 9.56 a.m. Uh, that uh, certain events occurred. Well, during this time period, you know, you got Gary Walker asking if he can go out to check to see if a witness is there. Uh, you have, uh, and we have affidavits from folks who were in the courtroom uh, that show that there was a conversation in the attorney room for the guys or among the guys trying to decide, okay, how we're going to dis, uh, deal with this situation. We got a judge telling us that she's going to shut our case down unless somebody takes the stand. There's way too much stuff happen for the only account for two minutes. And so, you know, there's a problem there. So with this transcript, we are still asking our listeners to go out, Go to change.org. We have a petition out there, and then we're going to have we got some new petitions that will be coming out, so we'll be bringing you up to speed on that. But go to change.org. Do a search on IRP6 and, and sign that petition regarding the missing transcript that is the key to the exoneration of uh, the IRP6. And then we're also asking people to call the, uh, the Attorney General's office in Washington, D.C., Yes, we want everyone who can, everyone who has the ability to dial, please call Eric Holder's office at 202-514-2003 or 2005 and request that he investigate the IRP6 case and the transcript related to the Fifth Amendment violation. That is a key point that we need, that we need some action taken on, and we need everyone's help to get it done. Absolutely. And then also, if you'd like to get more information about the IRP-6 case, uh, go to freetheirp6.org, freetheirp6.org. The IRP-6 are six IT executives who started IRP Solutions Corporation. They were developing software for state, federal, and local law enforcement. And uh, the business got raided in 2005 uh, after being in business for a couple of years and getting the attention of the likes of the Department of Homeland Security and NYPD. 
And, you know, now coming up on the uh, 13th anniversary of 9-11, that's a key milestone uh, in this country. It's also a key milestone for uh, IRP Solutions because I remember being on a sales trip with Gary and David and Clinton, and uh, we were in the hotel across the street from uh, Ground Zero in in, uh, New York City. Uh, And Gary making the comment that it was – Looking at that big hole in the ground, that was the reason why he was so dedicated in finishing the case investigative lifecycle software, the Silk software, so that nothing like that would ever happen again uh, on, this, uh, 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 on this soil or, or in this country. But coming up on the anniversary, you know, there are fears where people are talking about ISIS. Now, uh, you know, you heard this morning where, where al-Qaeda has now moved into India. And so there are a lot of fears there. Uh, because, uh, you know, between India and the United States, I mean, it's just a wide open door. I mean, you, and, and so there's a lot of fear. Well, the software that the guys developed would help to calm those fears because it would help uh, to track uh, uh, people of interest. Let me put it that way. You know, so you got Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zappolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Demetrius Harper. All of these guys are, are uh, men of integrity. They're family men. They're Christian men yet they have been sitting in prison now for over two years. And, uh, you know, but like we were saying uh, with the situation of the case going to the Supreme Court, uh, the writ of cert uh, and, and getting approval uh, on the hearing there, and I think what the, um, the opposition has until September 26th, I believe, yes. to reply. And so, you know, uh, there, there's more to come on that. Uh, for uh, also, uh, since Cliff is not, uh, I'll, I'll take this one for you, Cliff, until you get here. As far as the jury is concerned in the IRP six case, um, you know, we feel that something is uh, something happened with the jury, and uh, that something transpired in that jury room where Judge Arguello said something. I mean, those jurors are scared to death to talk about this case, and so we are uh, opening it up uh, and asking any jurors to contact a just cause if you want to chime in on this now you see you know things this thing is still moving forward and and a lot of things are being exposed in this case so we would encourage uh, the jurors to you know contact us if you want to remain anonymous you can do that you can contact our line at 855-529-4252 again that's 855-529-4252 or you can send us an email at contact at a-justcause.com again contact at a-justcause.com we're going to take a quick break we're going to come back in a few moments our phone number this evening is 347-838-8976 347-838-8976 i'm sam thurman lisa stewart cliff stewart will be joining us in a moment also special contributing analyst exoneree lamont banks don't go anywhere we'll be right back Join a just cause in the fight against wrongful convictions, judicial injustice, misconduct, and corruption. Contact us at 855-529-4252 or at www.a-justcause.com. You are listening to the Radio. 
unsanitary. They're just not clean. They don't feed you good. You always on. If you do something one time, you on lockdown. Got there like 10 o'clock, and they didn't let me eat the whole night. They just sent me to the um to the hole that they had us in. It was my first introduction into the prison system. It was a completely bad experience. Everything from the smell, sights, and the sounds. And it laid the groundwork, I believe, for whatever criminal history I had after my experience with Swaffer. His experience has been a nightmare. Um, this is a young man that has really never fought in the street. He's had constant fights in the facility where he's at. He's been robbed from his belongings, his clothes. Uh, so it's a horrible experience for him as well as for his family. Camp Cut Close Spofford is a movement of community folk, activists, young people, parents, uh, who basically believe that uh, Spofford, which was supposed to be shut down 12 years ago, when two new juvenile centers were opened, really opened, needs to be closed this time around for good, for good. and turned into something positive for the community. Well, I was horrified by the visit to Spofford today, um, as I'm always horrified by visits to youth prisons. Prisons are no places for children. It should be closed, should be closed, 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 closed. Um, bridges if it's now called that. It should never be open again. It is no place for children. Uh, it costs 237000 for one bed. Uh, in these uh, secure juvenile detention uh, centers, centers and half the kids who go into them are them are uh, within, uh, within one year. Um, so we know um, that uh, it's not working to lock kids up. Uh, the city uh, has finally uh, stated its intention to close Spofford down um, and, and we're thrilled about that, we celebrate that. Uh, however, we're also concerned because we know that last time that it was shut down, it was reopened it was re again in six again months six and months used again, again uh, as a juvenile detention facility. I would love to see this turned into, turned into some sort of multi-purpose, multi-service community center. center. The barbed wire is a gate. It's a prison in a community where there's so many young people that could be, be serviced to this facility in a positive way. All our children are talented, beautiful, and skilled, and it's just giving them the resources that they need to help them. Kids don't deserve to be there. Most of the kids that be there, they be like kids who you could tell just be scared or doing stuff that fit in. Like, that's not an environment for that. For me, I think they should have more community centers or programs to help us out instead of trying to incarcerate us. All this one do is make us worse instead of better. Instead of putting our kids at risk all the time, that's one of our potential, give them the necessary tools and, and, and alternatives to incarceration that have proven to be more successful. It's time for the people that we elect to represent us, within us to keep their promises and tell the truth and close the down for good. The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number, 347-838-8976. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks. I want to remind our listeners, go to aid-justcause.com and find out more information about A Just Cause. Uh, also, we, could, uh, certainly, uh, we would certainly appreciate any uh, donations you can make. Uh, we have a donate button on our website. 
Uh, we are still uh, working on our 501c3, but we would just ask that you donate because you believe in the cause of a just cause and the things that we're doing. Also, you can catch archives of the program at AJCRadio.com. Catch us uh, 24x7 AJC programming on Live365.com and then on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time at Progressive Radio Network. Uh, you can get there by going to PRN. Dot fm and again we appreciate you all uh, joining in and listening with us this evening so uh in the news we you know came across this article and, and it was on the on the broadcast news yesterday i believe uh regarding two men in north carolina just released from prison after 30 years i mean is that not is that crazy or what yeah you know, we've seen these type of situations you know a few times before it's you know, 30 years, 25 years, 39 years. And the thing that gets me, and we're talking about, uh, you know, the, we want to make sure everybody knows who we're talking about. They probably do. But we are talking about uh, Henry McCollum and Leon Brown that were in North Carolina that uh, got exonerated earlier this week and then uh, released 24 hours later. But the thing that really gets you about this is when you see it in the mainstream media, that they they gloss over it like, okay, these men were released. This is what, you know, their first meal was. You know, they were showing the uh they were showing um the one man that, oh, the first thing he learned how to do when he got out of prison was buckle a seatbelt. Well that's all great and dandy. But what about the police officers who uh didn't do the investigation? There was no physical evidence attached to either one of these uh, men at the time, one was 15 and, nine, and the other 19 when they got arrested. There was no physical evidence. There was no eyewitnesses. There was nothing. A rumor went around at the at the school that said, "Oh, they must have been the the they must have been the ones that did it because they were uh, mentally challenged." And from that, the police arrested them, brought them in coerced a confession out of them and never went looking for evidence or anything. Where are the police officers that didn't do the investigation? Where's the prosecutor that accepted that, uh, you know, that, that confession? Where's the judge who had to know that there is uh, an issue with mental capacity with these two young men? Where are the people that are being held accountable? And that's all the news does is show you this little glimpse of, oh, they're out. Uh, they had a bowl of cereal with real milk for the first time or something crazy. What about the people who put them in prison for no reason? That is what gets me every time we see one of these situations on national television. And there was DNA evidence. Yeah, that, that exonerated, that both, exonerated of both of them. And, and then the, the gentleman who actually committed the crime was uh, in, uh, incarcerated already for a similar crime. Yeah, so they already had his DNA. They, they, they never even tested it. They never tested the DNA that they found at the scene. They never did an investigation. They were like, well, we have a confession. What do we need to do an investigation for? It would be very nice if uh, they get the police officers, the prosecutor, the, uh, their so-called defense attorney who basically let them get railroaded and the judge. And they, you know, I won't, I won't say that they should line them up against the fence and shoot them. I will not say that that's what should happen. But they should pay for what happened to these two young men. I mean, um, I believe it was McCullum who said, you know, I spent uh, 30 years, they took 30 years of my life away from, from me for nothing. 
How do you get that back? I mean, you cannot recuperate 30 years of a young man's life. And you're talking about from the years from 15 to, to 45 That's to 50. That's a long time. There, he had his whole life is over. Every, the parts of his life that he would have used to make himself a career, to, uh, to, to you know, basically embed himself in his community, to become the man that, that he should have become. And he said, he said, you know, I always wanted to uh, start a business. I wanted to have a wife and a, and a family. And I never got to do those two things. So that is just, it's, it's atrocious. And I'm tired of seeing every time in the news that they, they don't show anything but you know, the, the, a little snippet of they've gotten out. And uh, we've got a caller on the line, um, Truth. We have you on the line, and you want to make a comment about this situation? Yes, I do. Um, I was watching Scott Pelly yesterday on CBS News when they showed that story, and I've seen him do this before. And he just said that these men were locked up in prison, and they didn't do anything wrong, and he shows a few clips of the families crying and the heartbreak of what they must have gone through for all those years. And not one time, not one time, we are constantly hearing about people wrongly incarcerated. You know, something is wrong with our media in this country, that you sit at that desk and you report the news you claim, and and you never, ever ask the question. You just turn back to your desk, Scott Pelley, and just continue with another story as if you just heard about a bird that fell out of a tree. I think we'd be more concerned about that bird than those two men that have spent all their time in prison. And when I looked at that, it's the cold callousness. It is no feeling. I thought, who controls the media in this country? We talk about all the other countries that control, uh, their countries control the media. Who's controlling ours? That the media never asks the question, why are we having so many of our citizens in this country, and most of them black, why is it that they are continually being put in prison and taking away their lives, and not one time, not one time, does anybody ask the question, what is the problem with this system that we're continually taking away people's lives? How would they like their lives to be taken away for 30 to 40 years? And who knows how long these men got to live? And after going through all of that, and I looked at those mothers and grandmothers and fathers and people just crying and how they prayed for it, and he showed absolutely no emotion. And they said, well, he's, he's a journalist. He's not supposed to. Well, he's supposed to have a heart somewhere to where you can feel somebody's pain. You don't even, it, it just doesn't matter. And that just makes me so sick. If you're gonna, if you're gonna report the story of them being uh, uh, brought out of prison because they were wrongly convicted, let's tell the whole story. Who was the crooked prosecutor? That's Who right. was the crooked judge in this case? And let's deal with the truth and put it out there that finally the Americans uh, in this country will be able to look at and start asking the question. We all, we ought to all ask that question. What's wrong with our system that are corrupt prosecutors or judges that's allowing this stuff to happen? When do we bring them to the courtroom and say, if you do this to these people, you're going to pay for it? 
There's a lot of families that's hurting out there. The pain is uncomprehendable. Do anybody care about these families and the suffering that they're going through? And they're going to prison for years upon years? And they sit in horrible conditions in these prisons, being fed some of the worst food on the planet, expired stuff, stuff that's not good for human consumption, literally wrote on the bag. I'm, just, I'm saying, what are we going to ask what's wrong? Who's going to care enough to say, for God's sake, why did these men lose 30 years of their life? Why did this other man stay in prison and then came out and passed away right after that? What is the problem? And it's beginning to really bother me more and more when I hear it uh, because it is so, so unbelievable that you could have people heartless. Our media has become hard and callous. And like, and like Craig was saying the other night, the biggest story now is weather. We don't need you to tell us about the storms. We all have storms. We're talking about the storms that's in human beings' lives, that's being snuffed out and taken away. They'll spend a week on a hurricane. That's and, right. and, and sure, it does a lot of damage, and sure, people's lives are lost. But that's not because somebody murdered them. That's an act of God, an act of nature. But you'll spend a week on that talking about it uh, and all this stuff, and we've got people sitting in prisons in terrible conditions, and you don't never say nothing about it? I just think something is wrong with this picture, and I hope Just Cause continues to cry aloud and let your voice be heard, and hopefully somebody somewhere in the media will say they have a point. Why don't we report this? Why do we cover up the wrong that the government is doing to its own citizens? Why don't we ask the hard questions? One day it will come home to them. When it comes home to them, then they'll be out there and they'll carry for weeks. How could you do this? And some reporter will be done wrong, this person or that person, and then they'll carry for weeks. It needs to come home to where they live. And That's when right. it comes home to where they live, I guarantee you we'll hear a different story out there. I pray That's to right. God that something changes in this country. It makes me sad, very, very sad, not just for the IRP6, but for people, black men especially, and minorities and poor people are locked up in prison and can't afford a, a lawyer to even represent them. They don't have a choice when they send them to prison, making them play, take plea deals. If you tell me, I, I, well, you're going to go to prison for 100 years, but I'll give you 50, who wouldn't take it? But I'm telling you, I believe that we need to stand in this country to say enough is enough. Let's right. put a stop to this. Our citizens deserve to have their life just like you got yours. And I wish that somehow, somehow, that God would please stretch out his hand in this country and let somebody stand up and say, when do we ask the question? And I'm glad we're talking about it tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comment. And just to, you know, go uh, to the to the article, you know, the the attorney for these two men, Ken Rose, uh, who was a senior attorney, staff attorney at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation in Durham. He's represented Henry McCollum for 20 years. And he said it's terrifying that our justice system allowed two intellectually disabled children. I mean, these were kids to go to prison for a crime they had nothing to do with and then to suffer there for 30 years. 
Henry, uh, which was one of the one of the the gentlemen that were exonerated, Henry watched dozens of people be hauled away for execution. He would become so distraught he had to be put in isolation. It's impossible to put into words what these men have been through and how much they have lost. And yet you have the media that gloss over it, gives it a 30 second to two minutes um, segment and then leaves it alone without asking the hard questions of where are the people who did these to these. I mean, these were kids, a 15 year old kid and a 19 year old uh, who were basically mentally challenged. How do you do that in good conscience? And like the truth said, you know, where is the judge? that did it and where's the prosecutor and the defense attorney that allowed it to happen. And, and, you know, I think our first guest can, can probably chime in on that because of the fact that she was in the media business and she was a broadcaster. She's a writer. Uh, she's written a couple of books, uh, her book exonerated, you know, and, and, uh, a, a project that she had started with her, uh, fiance at the time who was the 17th man uh, to be exonerated, uh, by DNA evidence in Dallas County. Uh, in in Texas, and that that happened in 2008. So let's bring Joyce King in on on this conversation. Uh, Miss King, are you there? Yes, I am. Good evening. How are you doing? We're doing great. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to to speak on this issue. And as you you know, uh, you, you probably were listening. You know, we were talking about the the two uh, gentlemen in North Carolina. And as I look at your website, you know, there are certain things that, that you cite here on your website as to, uh, in, in essence, it's like a pledge to, to get the word out about this kind of thing. And, and especially when we look at, like, our subject matter this evening as far as restoring relationships as, after exoneration. You know, a lot of people think that, you, that a person is released from prison, they just go about their merry life and, and, uh, and everything is, is back to normal. We know that's well, not first, I just, I, I just want to say that I'm so happy for the two brothers in North Carolina who were exonerated. And Mr. McCollum actually saw 42 men take that long dead man walk to the executioner wow. chair. And that's an amazing number of men for him to see, an image that will never be erased from his mind. And I understand why Mr. Brown did not even want to make comment uh, it's quite overwhelming to be exonerated after spending decades in prison. Uh, I was the um, first non-lawyer ever invited to serve on the board of directors with the Innocence Project of Texas. And uh, just a little background on Texas, we have had more DNA exonerations than any state in the nation, 50 men since 2001 alone. And Dallas, where I live, Dallas County, has had more DNA exonerations than any single jurisdiction in the nation. We have had 25 men exonerated since 2001. That is an enormous number for, I mean, some countries don't have that many men exonerated. And here it is, Dallas County has had that number of men exonerated since 2001. And as you mentioned, my late fiance, James Woodard, was the 17th Dallas man out of those 25 to be exonerated. And James was set free in 2008 after serving 27 years for a murder he did not commit. And I was part of the team that worked on his case and worked on his case, uh, trying diligently to to free Mr. Woodard because we knew that he was innocent. No, I had no idea that, you know, James would would see me in court and want to know who I was. He didn't realize I was with the Innocence Project. 
and we we fell in love and we were very happy but it was a lot of work uh the things that james came to me with were issues born of his long and wrongful incarceration he had nightmares he had a lot of um as i said issues that I imagine were very deeply rooted in prison. His diet, for example, which I write about in my book, Exonerated, uh, I call it the white foods diet, white white bread, white rice, white sugar. And he was not as healthy as I, I would have liked. So it, it was a lot of work to get him to doctors, to dentists, to therapy, to counseling, to try to get him acclimated to um, a life that he had left in 1980. And he's released in 2008. Um, There are issues as far as uh, technology. A lot of the men uh, I worked with, uh, several exonerees, they did not know how to work computers. They did not know about the Internet or cell phones. And there are so many challenges on so many different fronts. I, I was just really, really disappointed that once the arms go down and you see the men coming out of the courtroom or you see the family embracing them, we never hear the story of what really happens once that joyous moment is behind them. How do they live? What happens after that? Which states actually compensate them? Which states do not? So I wanted to write this book. Um, James died in 2012. And I'd made him a promise that I would tell people how hard he tried to be a better man, how hard he tried to survive his freedom. I'm sorry, but it's still very fresh. And I'm just very happy to have finished the book, which was very difficult to write. Uh, a lot of my readers were very patient. Uh, my my first book, Hate Crime, the Story of a Dragging in Jasper, Texas, was a critically acclaimed book that carried me across the globe to speak on. And so to write this kind of very ultra-personal book was quite different, writing Exonerated. But I, I did do it for him, even though we did not have the fairy tale ending that we wanted. But um, those issues that you know you all have been talking about in relationships post exoneration are are very real. The men are going to require a lot of help, a lot of patience uh they need to be around people that they can really trust because this was one of the downfalls and pitfalls for James that we were surrounded by um greedy con artists, money-grubbing people who thought, you know, we had all this money from being compensated. So I know what they will go through these next few weeks, months, and days after being set free because I lived it with James Woodard. Ms. King, uh, Lamont Banks here, uh, a exoneree myself. Uh, you know, I salute you for what you're doing in, in this problem. Uh, that you talk about is is around the globe um even though we don't hear about it all the time uh you know p- individuals like yourself that putting that information out there and, I, and my condolences to the to the lost and, and that you have suffered as well and i think that's why people need to really take a look i uh listened to what you said about the the diet and the system uh i you know i suffered uh, and almost almost died actually after getting out after 7 years uh, and was diabetic and had no idea that I was, and uh, was found in, in, in my home with my sugar level at 1,400 uh, from seven years from what my doctor explained to me of just just uh, poor diet. And, uh, I mean, I wouldn't even expect it to make it. 
so I think that's why, as you talk, uh, my heart goes out to you. But to the people that may not be as fortunate as I was uh, to survive such a, a, a abuse, if you will, by the system, um, we have to continue to speak out on these issues uh, because it, it it's, it's it's a life threatening situation and, I, and like you said where people go through after they get out uh, and, and again I, I've been fortunate and blessed to survive that uh, but I suffer from extreme uh, chronic back pain uh, you know and I'm diabetic that's something my doctors told me I will be for the rest of my life uh, somebody has to be held accountable for that well thank you Lamont for your condolences and also I'm very glad that you did make it and, and that you did get uh, the help that you needed from professionals health-wise because so many exonerees do not understand at first what is happening to them. They're overwhelmed, especially if it's a high-profile media case. So you come out and there's all this excitement. There are people that you haven't seen for 25, 30 years, and it, they are very easily overwhelmed. I've talked to a number of exonerees, and, and they're, they're on edge for the first few weeks of freedom because you don't know what to do first. Okay, okay, where do I go? What do I do? Uh, they're worried about fitting in. They're worried about being embarrassed. Did I mess up? Did I make a mistake? And so with James, for example, it was, it was, it was a learning process every day, and I, and I was challenged in every way that I could think of. I mentioned the nightmares because James, just getting him to sleep all night was a very big deal for us, those kind of things that you don't think will happen. Um, he was paranoid everywhere we went. He, was, he had a respect versus disrespect issue because that was something born of prison. So there were a lot of issues that once the cameras went off, people people did not see. And I do have to say, I, I heard your last caller mention Scott Pelley in particular. I'm not defending um, anyone. I'm simply saying Scott Pelley in 60 Minutes came to Dallas. They actually interviewed James, and Scott Pelley was very thoughtful during that interview. So I just want to say that a 30-minute evening newscast is probably not the right media forum to tell more of the story or for him to even have a reaction but he was very heartfelt when he interviewed James Woodard and I don't think I don't think he forgot meeting him we we did go to New York to uh sit with 60 minutes as a matter of fact they actually won a Murrow award because of the segment on James because it touched so many people, because people do want to know, why are we having all of these exonerations? Are you telling me there are this many innocent men in prison? So we have to look, we, we really have to begin to look at the issues in wrongful convictions. And 75% of these DNA exonerations, misidentification by eyewitness was a major factor. And so it's prosecutorial misconduct false confessions, uh, deals being made with informants, rogue investigators, lying forensic technologists. So there are reasons that this is happening. And people ask me all the time when I go across the country to speak, well, what's so special about Dallas? Why are you guys having so many men exonerated by DNA evidence? Well, Dallas County, even unlike a lot of counties in Texas, actually stored its biological evidence from cases that dated back to the late 70s. So we actually had DNA to test, where a lot of counties, including Harris County, which is Houston, were throwing away their DNA evidence, throwing away biological evidence after convictions. 
So there was no chance for people to go back and say, well, I, I would like to now have my DNA tested because there was no DNA. So Dallas did hang on to a lot of the DNA from cases in the early 80s, the late 1970s, but we do have to begin to look at the reasons why people were locked up wrongly to begin with. And some of that has to be put at the feet of these rogue prosecutors. Absolutely. And uh, Joyce, we're going to go to a break um, and talk about some of the issues on the other side. Uh, the issue with uh, with Texas, with, you know, that's uh, those 50 that have been exonerated uh, in Texas. That's a good start. Um, but we need to deal with the fact of all of them across America. And what that says about Texas and Dallas County itself, that you and your in one county have 50 men exonerated just on DNA. Who is actually doing their job in the judicial system? And uh, also, you know, you spoke about Scott Pelley. Maybe that's what it takes, is that the media needs to go sit down, get the heartfelt story to feel what's going on, not just say, okay, I read something uh, about this situation. They need to sit down, get uh, to the people that are being exonerated, find out their story, and find out what's going on uh, with them so that they can properly report about the situation. Uh, this is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, and we'll see you on the other side of this break. You are listening to Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 1 in 2 men, 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation, for the ones we love, for our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. Each week, a Just Cause Coast to Coast shares compelling stories about judicial injustice. But AJC doesn't leave it there. AJC Radio presents top guests from around the country who are advocates, activists, attorneys, and judges who provide insight into current events and the law. If you believe in what AJC is doing, we ask that you make a donation of any amount. Your kindness will be greatly appreciated. Go to www.ajc.com a-justcause.com and click on the donate button. Please note, a just cause is currently waiting on recertification by the IRS of our 501c3 status. So at this time, we ask that you donate based on your belief in the cause. Please consult your tax advisor for tax questions. We value you as loyal listeners and will continue to bring programming that provides education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Thank you for your consideration.
Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks. Joining us this evening is Joyce King, the author of Exonerated. Our phone number is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. Uh, before we go back to Joyce, I, uh, we have a caller, Cliff. Sorry about that. Yes, we do. We have the truth back on the line. Wanted to make a, uh, another comment. Yeah, I want to make a point um, of Miss King that the uh, the thing with Scott Pelley is not just a Scott Pelley issue. It is a media issue nationwide. But my my thing with Scott Pelley because I do watch CBS News was the fact. How long does it take for you to say? Should not we be asking the question why we're having so many people, so many people that's been that's been wrongly convicted in this country? They don't even take they don't even take twenty seconds. They say, should not we be asking the question? So we don't need thirty minutes for you to ask that question. Just I had three wrongfully convicted children, and I, if I feel if it sounds like. That 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 I'm uptight about it, or I really got a problem with it. I do have a problem with it. As a mother, I have a problem with it because it doesn't take 30 minutes on the air for you to say, "Should not we ask ourselves why are so many of our citizens coming out of prison wrongfully convicted?" And I guarantee you, that didn't take me five seconds to say that. So 30 minutes is not a problem, and it ain't just Scott Pelley. And just because Scott Pelley came to See, uh, the person she was dealing with is is a very small number uh, in comparison to how many men in this country are sitting in prison. We got over a quarter of a million pe- uh, uh, people that are incarcerated in the United States. We have 25 percent of the world's population when it comes to prisoners, and we think that you don't, you can't take a moment to address that. It is a major problem in this country, and it is very much newsworthy. While we, while we talk about every other thing, and I'm fine with other things they talk about, but let's don't leave out a major thing that's happening in this country that people and families are suffering for, because I know what my family went through, and having gone through this, we've seen it with other families, and so I am very much concerned why somebody, Scott Kelly or whoever it is, would ask the question, what's going on? That doesn't take five seconds to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. And no uh, one seems to be willing to ask that question. None of our media is asking that question. They just they, they smooth over it. They they talk about it for a couple of minutes, talk about when they're when people when someone's released. It's minor news. The yeah. major and then they come back and I heard Scott Belly say uh one evening after talking about I can't remember exactly what it was. I don't remember if it was Trayvon Martin or what it was. And he came on and he talked about it for maybe two, maybe three minutes. Then he said, let's move on to the important news. And that is just ridiculous because it, does, it doesn't matter to them. They don't care. It needs to hit home and then they'll start caring about it. Absolutely. And uh, we have Miss Miss King back in the conversation. And uh, like the caller said, Miss King, it's, it's, it's not just – Scott Pelley, he's happened to be the one on CBS that dealt with the issue, uh, I believe it was either today or yesterday. And uh, like Lisa just said, you know, there there has to be, the media has to take a, um, 
what would you call it? they have to take a, a larger interest uh, a, a personal interest that that brings the nation into the conversation that says this affects all of us and you well know, once just, again I, i'm not here to defend the media even though i was a working member of the media and i'm still a journalist today i do want to say that because that is a national newscast, the fact that they covered that story means they are paying attention, and we are getting their attention on the issues that matter when it comes to justice. So it was not as glossed over. I, I can't say that I agree with that 100%. That story was in the newscast at the top of the hour almost, and it ran on network after network after network. It ran on all the wire services, so it was not ignored. The fact that there should be more attention paid to this issue, I agree with 100%, but all I was saying was I doubt a 30-minute evening newscast is going to devote more than 90 seconds, two minutes, three minutes to it, no matter how important that story is. So that's when you call your local stations. That's when you call the headquarters for whatever media that you would like to say, I want to see more time devoted to this issue. And as I said, um, I wasn't uh, defending or disagreeing with your caller about Scott Pelley. I don't know him personally. I do know that when 60 Minutes came to Texas to talk about this issue, they devoted quite a bit of time to what was going on with DNA exoneration cases. And that's what we were trying to highlight so the rest of the country can see that if this many men are being freed, just imagine the non-DNA cases where we have nothing to test and those men are languishing in prison without a way to get out. So there are DNA cases and non-DNA cases, which are the much harder to prove cases of actual innocence. So they were very respectful when they came to Texas to highlight the issue for the rest of the country. So I, I, I do have to stand up and say there was a time when some of these stories would have been ignored altogether. So we are making progress because of people who are active, people who will not let it go, people who stand up and say, I demand that's enough. I want to know what's going on. I want to know what's being done about it. But I cannot say what's in Mr. Pelly's heart because he did not uh, respond or ask a question. He's an anchor. The reporter's job was to do that story, and I believe the reporter did do the story. Now, if he did not engage the reporter after that and he moved on to the next story, I, I cannot say what was in his heart at that moment or on his mind, whether it was offensive to people who were watching it. But let's praise everything that that story made it on the network and will continue to make it on all of the major networks and the news outlets so that we can continue to get the word out. We must use what we have, what's at our disposal. Let's not get caught up in semantics of it. Yes, you can say this is wrong and that or I don't agree with this or I do agree with that, but that story made the national news over and over, network after network. So I'm just glad that we're having this conversation because I do want to go back to the topic that I was invited to talk about. There have been 318 people exonerated by DNA in this country. Seventy percent of those DNA exonerations are people of color. And mm -hmm. that should give us all pause. Absolutely. 
And, and you know, uh, Ms. King, I think, you know, on that subject and, and then even on the subject that we were just talking about, uh, I think the thing is whether you're talking about uh, uh, the, the statistics that you share in the book uh, Exonerated, where you, whether you're talking about James Woodard or whether you're talking about uh, the uh, gentleman in, in North Carolina, Mr. Brown or, or Mr. McCollum. Uh, I think the, one of the, the points is uh, that uh, what happens, and you made a point you know, before the other break. You said that you, know, every, you have all the cameras there when a person comes out. Uh, you got all the family and friends there. And then I, I think the point that needs to be, or the question that needs to be asked is, what happens after the cameras go away? And I think that's one of the things that we are looking at, uh, you know, with regard to exonerations. Uh, you know, what happens after the cameras go away? And, 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 and that would be the facilitator, if you will, to say that uh, someone does need to, you know, take the, take the story. And like you said, you know, uh, whether it be a 60 Minutes or whomever, someone needs to show that compassion and say, okay, what went wrong in this case? Why, why were these men incarcerated for 30 years? And, and now, you know, we have the fanfare when they come out, but then they're kind of left to themselves. I think that's a, lot of them are, a lot of them are left to themselves. Um, I wrote a column in USA Today about uh, Mr. Glenn Ford, who was the 144th former death row inmate to be exonerated since 1973. And he, of course, came out of Angola, Louisiana, after 26 years. And what I was so angry about Glenn Ford's case was Louisiana is one of those states that do not even meet uh, the federal standard of compensating these individuals. So when they come out, they need mental services, they need health care, they need a place to live. A lot of our exonerees did not have any family left. So where where do they live? They need jobs. Where do they work? They need training because their work skills are or relics or throwbacks to another another time era. Um, they actually have to get acclimated pretty quickly, so there's pressure on them. Uh, there's a misconception that um, I wrote a column about the Central Park Five and the really bizarre comments Donald Trump made that, you know, these guys were no angels, why should they get $40 million? And, and that's the wrong thing to print because a lot of Americans think that exonerees get out and they're compensated millions and millions of dollars and they go on to, you know, lead these fairy tale lives. Nothing could be further from the truth, which is why I wanted to take the time to write. And the second part of my book is Exonerated, A Brief and Dangerous Freedom. Because I have to be honest with you, it was very dangerous for me and for James Woodard because when people found out that the state of Texas had compensated James $4 million, they actually thought we had $4 million. We had nothing close to $4 million. And even if we did, it was his money. But the point I want to make is all the money in the world, all the money in the world cannot buy back 30 years. And it does not make the exoneree happy or fulfilled or satisfied or ever able to get over the fact that he was robbed of a life. This is what was so difficult for James. No matter how much progress we made, he always had the question in his mind, 
but what if I had met you when I was younger, Joyce? What if we had fallen in love and been able to have children and get married and be productive citizens? And I just hate that I'm meeting you. When I met James, he was 55 years old. He, he was older than me, but he's 55, so he's his whole life is gone. And now men are expected to play catch-up because somebody's given them some compensation. And in a lot of those cases, one-third of people who have been exonerated in this country haven't been compensated at all, so I'm angry about that because they can't live without money. But yet when they do get the money, there is a, 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 a misbelief that's communicated around the nation that they're rich. No, they're not rich because a lot of states uh, have taxes that they have to pay on the money. They pay legal fees on that money, and they pay back any advances that they've taken on the money. So they're, they're not millionaires by any stretch of the imagination. So the money is there to help make them comfortable, help them start again, if you will, because of the issues that they face. And I still get emotional about this, so please forgive me. No, it, you don't have anything to apologize. I mean, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a very trying situation, and and we understand that. And you know, even with the compensation, uh, just like you say, people think, oh well, he got a check for four million dollars. And we've had several exonerees that even when they get compensated, it's still broken out. You know, they get a certain amount of money per year, and and they get a certain percentage of that, like you said, is still taken away. So it's not like, you know, hey, they they won the lottery. And even if they did, it does not make it okay that they kept a person in prison for, for 20, 30 years. That does not fix the situation. And well, absolutely well, some about of the things, I'm sorry, I, I was just going to say, excuse me, some of the things that you, you mentioned, the lottery, I think that's so ironic that you, you use the word lottery because – a lot of the exonerees that I worked with, the people that were attracted to this money, attracted to their notoriety, their fame, seeing them on television and stories in the paper, they preyed upon these men. So there have been so many dangerous uh, post-relationships for them, and they're still operating, as I describe in the book, like they're stuck in a groove. Just imagine, your life is taken away um in 1979, let's just say that's when everything stopped for you. You go to prison. You get 20, 30, 40 years, whatever. You get a life sentence. And suddenly you're set free in 2008 or 2010 or 2012 or yesterday. Well, guess where your life picks up from? 1979. Mm -hmm. And you come back out really believing that people are just like they were, and that was something that crippled uh, James and some other exonerees that I know personally, that they came out and there's still a belief that, okay, people are as good as they were in 1979. People are still decent. People are still going to give me the benefit of the doubt. People are not going to try to rob me blind. And James suffered from seizures that he had suffered for, for 20 years in prison that was kept you know, one, he took medication for 20 years, so everything was okay. But stress causes seizures to actually be a lot more active. 
so I couldn't figure out, okay, why is he having many more seizures? We've, we've got to calm things down around him. And that's when we also discovered the type 2 diabetes, the high blood pressure, and freedom, as he said to me jokingly one day, and I do try to give you some, some humorous points in the book. The first time I took James to Walmart, he thought we were going to Walgreens. <laughs> and when he saw the size of Walmart, anyone would be stressed out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like super Walmart. Wow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it was just everyday living that was uh, overwhelming for someone who has had left life, really, in 1980 and come back in 2008. Yep. The book is entitled Exonerated. Our guest uh, is Joyce King. Ms. King, thanks for joining us this evening to share your thoughts about uh, uh, the book and, and then to, to, to share some uh, thoughts as far as, you know, what uh, exonerees encounter when they, uh, when they are released and uh, a story uh, of you and, and your uh, fiancé, James Woodard, and uh, from a firsthand account. So, uh, Ms. King, how can folks get in contact with you? Well, they can go to the website, which is writerjoyceking.com, and they can see you know, a couple of photos of, of James, a couple of photos of me. Uh, they can also order the book directly from the site, and they, there's a place for them to send me email. And, you know, I've been hearing from women all over the country saying, you know, this is my story. I fell in love with this guy, and this is what happened to us. He'd been incarcerated. So I'm actually hearing from a lot of women who not necessarily were with people who were exonerated, but know something about being with men who were incarcerated. And this is completely new for me because, you know, um, here I am, I, you know, someone who worked for CBS a long time, uh, was on the Oprah show with hate crime. So James Woodard was not the type of guy that I would ever be attracted to, but he stole my heart. Wow. And, and, right. and I understand that's love, but thank you so much for, for having me on. <laughs> All right. And so folks can listen to archives of the, uh, the segment with uh, Ms. King at AJCRadio.com. Again, AJCRadio.com. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back on the other side. Our phone number is 347-838-8976. 347-838-8976. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education awareness, and information about judicial injustice. They'll see you before you see them. Cops are cracking down on drinking and driving. Drive sober or get pulled over. Our children are literally eating themselves to death. Many experts predict that this may be the first generation of children that doesn't live as long as their parents because of the problem of obesity. A quarter of American children don't exercise regularly. The average school-aged child watches four to six hours of TV every day, bombarded by commercials for fast food and junk. How you make these kinds of lifestyle changes in your kids is to make them yourself. Make the effort. Fight childhood obesity. A message from the government of Canada. How was 18 ended? So drugs for money. Didn't want to live on the high. Ran away with drugs in my pocket. 
open cup and catch me. No place to go. All I wanted to do was steal drugs, collect that money, and burn. I had no hope for nothing at all. Didn't care for anything or anyone. After doing some time, I was ordered to do probation.
The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. A Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks. Our phone number is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. During the break, you heard the uh, IRP6 anthem written by Dallas Burgess, and that number, uh, if you go out on SoundCloud, uh, now has over 4,300 hits. And so uh, go out, listen to it, and support uh Dallas, just by clicking, you know, clicking and listening to it, you know, folks who post things out on the internet like to like to see those numbers go up. Uh, one of the things that Miss um, King brought up uh, just before the break was how Mr. Woodard was suffering from seizures and uh, and and the stress level and so forth. And we've talked about this before from a family perspective and how uh, exonerate or how incarceration and wrongful incarceration, wrongful convictions affect, you know, everyone across the board is not just that person who is incarcerated. And I think, you know, even as we talked about, you know, uh, why the media isn't covering this type of thing. Uh, and, and it's that part of the story that people need to hear. And that's why you get a little uh, frustrated and a little irritated when, you know, the media, they're there to show the person walking out but then they don't show the whole effects of this thing. And so, you know, I, when she mentioned the thing about seizures, I thought about, uh, you know, Gary Walker, one of the IRP6, and, and his son, Kyle, uh, who suffers from seizures. And, and because of this situation of his father being incarcerated, uh, the seizures uh, intensify, and the seizures have uh, at times become more regular. Uh, when you go for visits, you're going to visit your loved one's uh, who are incarcerated, and you're going there every week and sometimes, you know, twice a week and then on holidays. And so when you have this type of situation, people need to be aware that it, 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 it's a, it affects people uh, other than just the person who is incarcerated. And like you were saying, Lamont, with your personal situation from the diet, how that impacted your health, uh, the sleeping conditions and the living conditions, how that affected your health, and you weren't even aware that you were suffering from those uh, uh, conditions until after after you got out. And so, well, well, well sure. And the, and, the, and I think the most horrible part of that is, and I think uh, you know the, the previous caller made a good point, is that uh, we don't give enough attention because the society is is, in my opinion, brainwashed to believe uh, that it's not that bad. You know what I mean? And so once the society takes and adapts to that way of thinking, well, they're kind of like zombies walking around unclear. Uh, and I can speak to that because I lived it. Uh, the prior caller could speak to it because she has suffered extreme pain as a result of the lack of exposure, the lack of attention that these issues are not getting. That's so. Right. I think until people recognize, until they walk it, until they live it, every man is different and deals with that very differently. Every human is different. Every individual is different. You know, you got somebody that's locked up 30 years. Uh, that's a that's a, that's that's a tragedy. But that's equally a tragedy 
for Lawana Clark, who was locked up six months, who comes from a background uh, that she's never been away or locked up, never been accused of doing anything wrong. She's flown away out of the state and spent six months in a federal prison. Well, that's equal to 30 years because of where she comes from. Right. You know what I mean? People don't understand, and it's because they choose many times to, tur- to turn a blind eye to it uh, until, like, like, you know, like, like we keep saying, until it hits your doorstep, you know, you're not going to get it. And that's why the exposure of that is very important, and we continue to crowd against that stuff. Let's go to our next guest, Cliff. Uh, we have Ashley Marie Long. And uh, she is fighting for her husband, Ronnie Long, and he's been incarcerated now. Um, gosh, uh, I guess when, when they uh, met, he had been um, incarcerated for over 30 years, nearly 40 years. And so let's bring Ashley on. Uh, Ms. Long, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the, the case of Ronnie, it looks like, I mean, this is a strange case, and, and, and that's one of the things that we look at here on the program. I'm going to start using the term that uh, uh, Andrew Craig used, uh, that it has a lot of irregularities. Oh, yeah, that's you know? irregularity. And when yeah. you have a situation where uh, uh, the DNA evidence and, the, and then you got the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court uh, getting stuck in a tie on reviewing a case. Yeah. Yet, Mr. Long continues to be incarcerated. So tell us about, uh, uh, as far as, you know, some of the things that you're doing uh, to try and get Ronnie out of prison. Um, Well, we have a petition on MoveOn.org. It's um, the Ronnie Long Project, and there's also a Facebook support page. It's um, called the Ronnie Long Project as well. Um, And I guess I'm just trying to create as much public awareness as possible because this case is more political than it is criminal. Um, you know, we're talking about somebody who was 19 years old. He had no criminal background at all when they put him in prison. Um, and upon being convicted, they sent him to the worst prison in the state of North Carolina. Um, and for the charges that he's convicted of, first-degree rape and first-degree burglary, he was given two life sentences. Um, he just missed the death penalty because the legislation had just changed in 76. Um, so he could have already been dead. Um, so thankfully, you know, um, he's not. But he has served more time than anyone else in the entire state for the same charges. I mean, he's seen murders come and go. Um, and he has quite a few things going for his case. I mean, just in 76, a life sentence was defined as 80 years. Well, 80 years plus your gain time, Ronnie was due to be released two years ago. Um, however, former Governor Beverly Perdue denied him and 133 other inmates their release because she said that she – you know, would go to jail herself before releasing, you know, these heinous criminals in the streets of North Carolina. Um, so not only is Ronnie, you know, wrongfully incarcerated, you know, based on a wrongful conviction from an all-white jury, which was not of his peers, 13 white people convicted him, four of which had connections to the victim, um, you know, which, okay, conflict of interest. And um, he's wrongfully convicted, and now he's also not being able to be released. Um, you know, and... And there's hairs that can be DNA tested. They keep denying him that. Um, I mean, it's just ridiculous. The the circles they keep, you know, just they just they literally just railroaded him. Um, and any you know any reasonable person that looks at his case says, wow, there's you know there's many you know injustices going on here. Yet nobody's doing anything about it. I mean, I've had lots of attorneys look, and they said, you know, the incident took place of April 26, 1976. He was taken into the state custody May 10th. 
He was convicted on October 1st. For something that carries a life sentence, that's a very, very end conviction. That's when it, that's a, an attorney looked at it. That's the first thing he noticed. Yet, you know, did that attorney say, I'll take the case pro bono for you? No. Um, you know, because of the deep corruption, corruption in the state of North Carolina, um, you know, even Ronald Cotton, the first person in North Carolina to be exonerated by DNA evidence, he knows about Ronnie's case, you know, and I've met with him multiple times, yet has he taken an active stand for Ronnie? He was actually incarcerated with Ronnie. No, and Dr. Benjamin Chavis, the NAACP here in North Carolina, was incarcerated with Ronnie, too, in 76 Central Prison. Um, and, you know, has he taken a stand? No. So it's just, um, you know, it's very frustrating because it's like we keep hitting these brick walls. I mean, it, it took over a year to get, over, you know, a 1,000 signatures on a petition of support, yet I look at it and there's, you know, over 8,000 views on it. You know, why aren't people signing it? Um, you know, the evidence. You know, I've scanned all of his court documents into the computer. I can email them, and I have emailed them to anybody and everybody who asks, because I want people to see with their own eyes the evidence, you know, the lab results um, from the FBI lab in Raleigh that say, you know, these are not a match, and Ronnie's innocent, you know, yet he's still behind bars. And the most disturbing fact is that the real rapist has been free for 39 years. You know, on September 15th, it'll be Ronnie's 59th birthday. Um, that he, you know, this past Labor Day was the 40th Labor Day that he's had to spend in prison while being innocent, you know, while the real criminal has been out there free to commit more crimes, and an innocent man has lost his life. I mean, his family has suffered. His dad died fighting for him. He's lost his sister and his grandmother. I mean, his mother's health is is failing very quickly, um, and, you know, I mean, it's the impact to see on his family, I mean, it, it's really heartbreaking. It's so why it's been affected. So when you say that it's it's uh, political, uh, and I, I assume that it's um, partly because of the racial makeup of uh, of the town uh, Concord, uh, and then uh, but then when I look at the uh, situation with the North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, that that was heard in 2009. Was that the last time uh, that was presented to the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court? Yes. Um, it was. They came to a tie decision. Um, three judges voted yes, three voted no, one declined to vote after hearing all of the arguments. Um, you know, and that's, this is also something that's never happened in the entire state of North Carolina. Um, it's never came to a tie decision. And, you know, Ronnie took, he got a, he got a public defender from the North Carolina Prison Legal Services um, to represent him for his second and final attempt in federal court. And that attorney intentionally threw out his case. I mean, we have the papers from that attorney saying, this is your second and final attempt in federal court. You need to file, you know, these Fourth Circuit papers. Yet the attorney never filed those Fourth Circuit papers, so the case is dismissed on paper, you know, on clerical errors, um, you know, which is just like, why, you know, why are these things happening? It's, you know, it makes no sense for the attorney. I mean, you know, you see the letter that says, you know, all right, you need to file these papers, yet that same attorney does not file those papers. Um, you know, and, you know, it's, Ronnie doesn't have money. You know, that's another big issue. I mean, and that's one thing that's extremely frustrating, too, is you see, you know, I, I just saw on Facebook there's a, a cop who was used his position and he raped eight black women, and he has funding. He has, like, over $400,000 of funding from people online support. And, you know, I can't even get a dollar to go towards, you know, for Ronnie's support. And Ronnie's innocent. You know, it's, it's, it's sickening. And, and what about, I mean, you mentioned uh, several folks that you've reached out to, and, uh, and I know that 
as far as like the Innocence Project uh, there, uh, what what have they had to say about this situation? Well, when the the UNC School of Law Innocence Project took a case, and that's when they came to the Supreme Court and came to the tie decision. And I guess after that, they just decided they were done. Um, I've reached out to the Innocence Project in New York, and I have talked to Vanessa Potkin, senior staff attorney there, and she um, is seeing where Ronnie's case is at with their entry process. So we're just we're waiting that. But right now, his case is with the North Carolina um, Innocence Inquiry Commission, who, you know, I don't trust fully because they're chosen by the North Carolina General Assembly. And, I, you know, to be honest, I don't trust any any agent of the state of North Carolina. I mean, in, in Ronnie's case, the agents of the state committed perjury. I mean, Roxanne Vanikoven, Cabarrus County's current district attorney, lied on stand. She said that she reviewed, you know, the master case file um, for, you know, for Ronnie's case, and she said there's nothing of it of evidentiary value. However, you know, despite her perjury, the judge granted us a motion to view that file, and that's when we found the lab results from the FBI lab in Raleigh that state, you know, quite the opposite of what she was saying. You know, and yet she's never been held accountable for that misconduct, for committing perjury. I mean, you know, the officers back in 76 committed perjury. So it's, um, you know, it's just, it's very frustrating. Nobody, no agent of the state is being held accountable for, you know, for their actions of misconduct. And, and, you know, why? Why is that? Um, And, you know, there's a former congressman who married into the victim, um, into the family that the victim's connected to of this crime. You know, and they have a lot of money and a lot of political power. You know, I'm talking, these people were friends with President Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt. So, um, you know, we're up against, you know, I mean, I, I've sold everything that I own to try to fund, you know, get wristbands, get business cards, um, you know, go speak for him, um, you know, trying to sacrifice it all because sacrifice brings success. Um, you know, but, you know, you have to be able to support yourself, too, to keep continuing on and, um you know, I guess it's just, it gets, you know, very frustrating and disheartening that, you know, nobody wants to help an innocent person. So, Ashley, how, how did you get involved in the in the case uh, yourself? Um, I was living in Concord, North Carolina, unfortunately, um, at the time. And, I mean, you have to experience Concord yourself. I mean, it's definitely, there is, there is still segregation in Concord. I mean, it's, even though it's 10 miles northeast of Charlotte, it is, it's, it's something it you just have to experience it firsthand yourself um and you know it's it's just very different um and a friend of mine was murdered and we were holding some vigils because we didn't feel that the police really handled it you know how they should have and during the vigil the neighbor said oh you know you should google the name ronnie long if you're interested in cases like this um you know and so i i googled his name and i read an article about him and I, my heart went out to him. I just, you know, I, I initially only got involved to help, um, you know, so I had no other intentions, but, you know, you know, things happened. But, it was, you know, I, I came across him, and I, and I knew that you could find prisoners where they were, and so I found him, and I wrote him a letter, and I just said, hey, you probably don't like white people. I don't blame you, um, you know, but I, I want to help you any way that I can. I'm a broke college student, so just an FYI, but I'm going to do whatever I can to, you know, help you fight for justice um, and we went, we went from there because I believe in going directly to the source, um, you know, and we just hit it off. We started with letters and phone calls, and now I visit him every single week, um, you know, and I, 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 you know, conference him into people. I put him on speakerphone so people can hear him, but I think it's very important for people on the outside to hear him because he's, 
he still has his sanity, you know, thankfully to God, right. and he still has his right mind. And uh, what we're going to do, uh, Ashley, we're going to put out, uh, obviously, we're, we're going to post information on our website about this. And then we're going to uh, ask our listeners to support you by going to www.RonnieWallaceLong.com. Again, www.RonnieWallaceLong.com. This is Ashley Marie Long, and, and she joined us this evening to share her story of her husband, Ronnie Wallace Long. Uh, who has been uh, incarcerated, and there is no evidence tying him to the crime, uh, yet uh, it seems like there's a stone wall there. And so you, we're going to ask folks to go to that website, uh, help Ashley by signing their, their, uh, their petition, and uh, we'll see, Ashley, if we can help to get some traction on that on your behalf. Thanks for joining us, Ashley Marie Long. Uh, our phone number this evening is 347-838-8976, 347 838 Eight nine seven six. We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we got some breaking news for you. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Each week, a Just Cause Coast to Coast shares compelling stories about judicial injustice. But AJC doesn't leave it there. AJC Radio presents top guests from across the country who are advocates, activists attorneys, and judges who provide insight into current events and the law. If you believe in what AJC is doing, we ask that you make a donation of any amount. Your kindness will be greatly appreciated. Go to www.a-justcause.com and click on the Donate button. Again, www.a-justcause.com and click on the Donate button. Please note, A Just Cause is still currently waiting on recertification by the IRS of our 5013C status. So at this time, we ask that you donate based on your belief in the cause. Please consult your tax advisor for tax questions. We value you as a loyal listener and will continue to bring you programming that provides education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Thank you for your consideration. the Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks. That's our theme music for breaking news. And, uh, you know, we, we have to share with our listening audience uh, the breaking news of uh, our relationship with attorney uh, Mark Garagos. And uh, today we put out a press release uh, that uh, explains that we com- uh, filed a complaint with the California Bar Association regarding uh, Mr. Garagos. And, and, you know, Cliff, this stems from the relationship uh, that, that basically fell apart uh, right. with, with Mr. Garagos. I mean, not, at, you know, not off of anything that the RP6 did, not off of anything that we did, uh, but we, you know, as the press release explains, it's a thing where I sum it up as poor communication, and then also uh, one of the other things that we filed it under was the uh, lack of competence. And, and, and from the standpoint, uh, when we talk about communication, now, Cliff, you know, we went out and met with Mr. Garagos over a year ago. We talked about the 
RP6Ks. And he said that he thought that out of all of his 30 years of practice, that he had never seen anything like this before. He even went on national radio on a, on a syndicated program on Sirius XM Radio and said the exact same thing. And, and, and he shared the thoughts that it's clear that the IRP-6 are not, and using his term, we're not talking about crack dealers on the, on the corner. We're talking about respectable men. Now, the thing that happened is when we first approached him, we approached him about the civil case uh, regarding the transcript. And uh, he you know, met with his partners. And uh, he said, you know, again, you know, in 30 years of practice, I've never seen this. You know, right. a, a federal case where a transcript just mysteriously disappears. Well, you know, the family, friends uh, came together. Uh, Mr. Garrigo said, this is going to cost you $50,000. And so, you know, granted, you know, this is Mark Garrigo's. Uh, uh, family members had seen him on television. And said, you know, this guy looks like he really cares about uh, situations. He cares about cases. You know, we ought to try and reach out to him. We did that. And then when we did reach out to him and the family came to then, and mind you, the family's had to scrape to make this happen. I mean, no one has, you know, uh, a stash laying around just to, just to say, okay, yeah, I can write a check for that. No, this took several people to pull this together. And it just seemed as though, uh, you know, early on there was, there was good dialogue, good communication. But then the more and more it went on, it seemed like there was less and less communication. And, you know, uh, we reach out, make a phone call, wouldn't get a return phone call. Send an email, wouldn't get a return email. You'd uh, set up a conference call. Uh, initially, uh, conference calls were happening, you know, almost almost the way uh, they were scheduled, but then very quickly uh, it always got pushed out. I mean, yeah. you say, hey, let's talk on Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Well, Tuesday at 10 o'clock comes, and it's like, okay, uh, can we push this to Wednesday? And then Wednesday became Saturday. And what, our, our standard calls were, our, what, on, on Sundays? Yeah, and we it, it ended up where uh, Sam and I just came up. We had a saying when he would say, Okay, let's talk on Monday. We said Monday will become Sunday, Sunday. because yeah. that is what would happen. Every time he would make a schedule, there was always a reason. And I'm that was, traveling. Yeah, that was one of the one of the um, one of the things that the that the complaint to the bar is about is that the the communication you have to communicate effectively with your client as a professional attorney, and to say okay, we're going to talk uh, on Monday and then push it to Sunday. Granted. Things happen with attorneys. You you have to go to deposition. You might be in trial, but a football game, right? You say hold hold on, I'm gonna push this out. Uh, you know, you guys give me 20 minutes, and then hold on again, and it's like, what's going on? We're on the line waiting for you. Well, it's a good football game on. Uh, I'm a fan of the team playing. It's like that does that does not that does not constitute communication with your client that you say that and 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 i mean you're talking about these are people people are in prison we're trying wrongly. to get wrongfully incarcerated he said that he knew they were innocent he said like like sam mentioned before this is something he never seen in all the time of his practice but you're putting off the where client? was the sense of urgency yeah where is the sense of urgency where is the sense of i need to communicate with you to let you know what's going on and 
that even came to show when uh, Judge Jackson in the initial uh, scheduling hearing told him, well, go down to the courthouse, get me, show me what's down there. Because, you know, in Judge Jackson's, uh, in that scheduling hearing, he asked the prosecutor, well, do you think that if, if, uh, if the judge said anything to give these men the inclination that one of them had to take the stand, do you think that would be justice? And the prosecutor had to say no. And he told Mark Garagos, go out, get me what's at the courthouse so I can look at it, because I want to bring Darlene Martinez, the court reporter, in the courtroom, I want to get her sworn in, and I want to make her testify as to what happened to that portion of the transcript. And what did it take, like two months two and before a half months. he filed it? And that was with us hounding him out. The next day. That's when I got cursed out. Right, yeah, that's true. You did get cursed out. <laughs> but the next day. The next I mean, day all I did as a client, all well, I did say, was hey, just call my attorney and say, right. hey, what's hey, up? Mark, where are you? <laughs> We're waiting for you to file this. And, and I mean, uh, Attorney Solomon, who was, you know, um, as she's been doing on this for the appeal, uh, was helping out pro bono, and she's like, hey, I will go to the courthouse. I will get you what's down there and deliver it to you tomorrow. She did that the very next day as Judge Jackson had uh, and she had provided it. it and provided it to Mark Garagos and his team. And then we, of course, said, okay, now you have what he's looking for. When are you going to file it? It'll be done shortly. Yeah. When are you going to file it the next day? It'll be done shortly. Give him a week. Have Do we have any progress? Well, not yet, but it'll be filed next week it'll be filed monday and monday becomes tuesday becomes wednesday thursday friday saturday and two months later and we're looking at it, we're like okay judge jackson is going to get ticked off that he told you go get me this information that's right and now you wait two months well, and file it later and and, I, and the thing is Cliff can't leave out that point that judge jackson ended up doing it himself yes he ended up and if it was fresh in his mind that I mean, he's a judge. He this is not the only case he's dealing with. But when he says, "Get me that immediately," if you would have got it to him the next day, and it was fresh in his mind what he just dealt with with the with the prosecutor and his frustration with the situation that you want me to just make this go. I mean, Judge Jackson is is saying these things in the schedule here. You want me to use some type of law to make this go away so right. nobody ever have, knows right. what happens with the uh, with this with this uh, portion of the transcript. And, and yes. Judge Jackson also said during that hearing, not not just that go get this and then we're gonna uh, we need to get Darlene Martinez in here, but he actually said if Darlene Martinez was there that day, right. that he would have called her in and and would have asked her, you know, what you know, where, where's the transcript? Yeah, and when you get a when you get a judge that is on your side and saying, hey. I'm going to deal with what's right. I mean, just just like uh, Ashley, Ashley Marie Long was just saying, she can't get the judges there in North Carolina to take responsibility in the in the situation with uh with with Ronnie Long. She can't get them to move. She can't even get the judges to all vote. When a judge says, you know what, I'm not going to even vote just to make sure this man stays in prison, that is sickening. But when you have a judge like in, in uh, this, in the, the civil case against Darlene Martinez, that says, I'm frustrated about what I see going on, and you want me to smooth this over for you, when a judge is saying that and is on your side, give him the information that he's looking for, and you as an attorney, you owe that 
to not only the judge uh, giving you the 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 uh, the direction, go do this. I need to see it, but you owe that to your client who's paying you, and you're watching a football game. Yeah, and and you know even uh, now that was in the civil case, right? So it was around the I think around the January time frame or so that we approached uh, Garagos and said, okay, so you know uh, we have this uh, situation where we want the guys out on bond, right? Can you recommend someone that could uh, draft up a motion for bond pending appeal? Because one of the things that we uh, that we kept hearing also was that okay, we can do a bond pending appeal once there is new evidence that comes comes to light. Right. Well, it was clear that that something was missing, so there was no dispute there. But from January until June. And the, and the thing was, when we first asked him about that, uh, he, he basically said, and I had that conversation with him. Mm-hmm. Number one, he said, yep, it's a good idea to go that route. Then he said, well, there's no need in finding anyone else because, you know, I want to, I want to take that on as well because I want to see this thing through. I want to help the guys get justice. And, uh, and so we're like, you know, we're great. I mean, again, we're talking Mark Garagos. Everyone was like, this is great. He wants to do it. Okay. In order to do that, though, let me get with my partners and let's see what that's going to what that's going to cost. And so came back with another fifty thousand uh, uh, dollars for a retainer to, to do that. Well, you go to the family members and your loved ones have been incarcerated for at that time. It hadn't been two years, but. It was approaching two years. I mean, you know, the, the saying, one day is too long. That's right. But at that time, it hadn't been two years. But still, you know, the families are like, okay, what do we need to do in order to make this happen? Uh, because this man is, you know, he, he is top in his, in his business. So everyone, again, you know, mm-hmm. they, they pull money off a of credit card. They got loans. They did whatever they needed to do in order to pull that $50,000 together. So now you're at $100,000. 102. Uh, <laughs> $102,000. We do not make a small matter of that other $2,000. Well, Cliff, just the $2,000 right. will put a dent in people's pocketbook yeah. that's going from paycheck to paycheck exactly. or month to month. So just the $2,000 by itself. Now, so this thing drags out. You got the uh, – and then in the meantime, Judge Jackson, he comes back, and uh, and, and he and – he, uh, the the civil case ends up getting dismissed because of the things that are going on. Uh, obviously, you know, in our, in our opinion, that not timely resp- uh, responding to the judge in this situation, two and a half months. And it yeah. didn't take the judge long after that two and a half months to make his ruling. Right. And so, uh, so you got that going on. You got $100,000. The IRP6, they're sitting in prison. And they're getting anxious, and they want to, you know, get this thing moving. So, okay, let's see what we can do as far as getting this bond pending appeal uh, moving. It's not until May of 2014, May of this year, that Garagos has his first conversation with the IRP6. Yes, and you're supposed to be, they're your clients. We retained them in September. Right, and they're your clients at least from January about the uh about the the bond pending appeal and their thing was we want to talk to him as his clients to tell him 
our perspective, what we want done. And, and yeah, it's, it's great to have the families communicating, but there's nothing like you being able, especially being locked up in prison, you being able to say, hey, I'm going to talk to my attorney. It's, it's real now. I'm having a conversation right. with him and telling him from my perspective, this is what I want you to do. This is what our desires are as your clients. This is how we want you to deal with our case. And so for him to, and then when he talks to them, the things that he tells them, the thing, I mean, uh, and, and obviously sometimes a client has a different perspective than the attorney. They come together and they uh, may go back and forth and say, okay, we'll come to a conclusion. The conclusion is always what the client wants, whether the attorney uh, agrees or not. But then for him to uh, scream at them on the phone, tell them you're going you're gonna to spend all of these years in prison because you're not you're not doing it my way. You're going to spend this time in prison. And they told me like we will concede. Let's let's put the bond pending appeal and then we can do a, a oral argument in the event if that needs to come up later. But he, let, let me ask you a ahead. question. How many times have they spoken to him prior to that? Zero. Okay, I just want to be sure we don't miss that. I mean, that they had never spoken to him before. Never spoken to and him before. And he's screaming at them. He he basically tells them off, and then hangs up the phone in their face. And it's like, how are you doing this? And you're supposed to be you're supposed to be their attorney, and they're your clients. How do you talk to them one time, disrespect them? Uh, take away, I mean, tell them you're going to spend all this time in prison. Why do they need you to tell them that when you're being paid the money by, by, uh, by their families, when their families have uh, scraped this money together and then you come in and all you do is try to take away the hope that they have? While you're doing absolutely nothing. And that's another time that I got screamed at. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and I'll, t- I'll take it. You know what I'm saying? But the thing is, but the the level of unprofessionalism yes. that was displayed, I was shocked. I, yes, I, I was, was shocked. I was shocked because you know you see this man on television. You see him saying, "Okay, he's standing up for justice. He's about um, you know he's he's speaking up about the judicial system being wrong." But then when it comes down to it, and you talk to him in person, and you deal with him in person, I mean, uh, the first first. You know, first time you talk to him, it's like, oh, this is a great guy. He's very personal, this and that. But when you deal with him as your attorney, it's a whole nother story. Well, you, you get you get no attention. You get you get no results. Uh, you know, when you hire him on, you hired him, and you hired him to do a job. How do you go two months and ignoring a judge's order say, hey, do this? Right. So that I can see what's going on two months. And then you take you take five months to get in touch with your client. And, you know, it makes you go back and look at Michael Jackson. Yes. And in the Michael Jackson situation, uh, it's classic of, you know, uh, I need someone that is going to pay attention to my case because my life is on the line here. And and, uh, you know, obviously he deals with the with the um, high caliber. Uh, top celebrities and that type of thing. So no one is saying that the expectation is that, is that you get that uh, type of treatment uh, every single day. But when it gets to the point to where someone who does have the million dollar checkbook mm-hmm. is paying your salary and you're you're uh, you know you're you're 
throwing them off? You know, something's wrong. And then even with the uh, Judge Sarakin even said, you know, yeah. with the with the dismissal of that civil, then there was a short window by right. which to do something as far as uh, the the bond pending appeal. And so, you know, it, it was just when you it was just so much conflict and so much confrontation. It was the type of thing that you would never expect. We got a caller. Yes. We have the truth on the line. You have a question, I believe. Uh, no, I think I want to comment. Uh, I, I, I am, I am the mother of the RP six, and I was thinking as I listened to you and Sam. I mean, personally, I talked to Mark Garagos, uh myself. And I, in fact, I'm the one who encouraged y'all to, to reach out to him because when I saw him on, on, on CNN, he appeared so sincere and, and concerned about the injustice and how, how, how the, the court system was definitely racist, I mean racist and biased and all, all those type things. And I thought, well, let's, Let's let's go with him. He sounds like a guy that really cares about justice, and and he t- and and we got in touch with him, and and then all I mean, look at first it seemed like boy we just had the had a really good attorney, and all of a sudden I don't know what happened to that man. You think we had uh, Bertha and somebody named Mark there? <laughs> uh, a, a double personality. I thought, who is this fellow? And I mean, when he cursed out Sam on the phone, and then he yelled and screamed and carried on. I thought, my God, who is this? And we were trying to stay as calm as possible because he had taken another fifty thousand dollars, and we surely didn't want him to take the money and then not do what he said. But that's exactly what he did. He took the money. He didn't. He didn't do anything. Gwen Solomon, the appellate attorney, worked pro bono, working hard. She was so glad he came on. She was excited about it that she could work with him. And after a while, he wouldn't return her call. And after a while, wouldn't work with her. Got angry because she said that she felt they had done something incompetent by not uh, doing something they should have done as attorneys. Oh my God. I guess he said, I'm Mark Garagos. Boy, did we find out who you were. And our families have gone through a great stress financially and everything, and he walks away with $100,000. That makes you sick to your stomach. And I mean, don't care. I thought, I thought to myself, in my own opinion, I wondered, did somebody pay you to turn to, be, to cut our throat? Because it's a cruel world out there. We've learned a lot since we've been going through this process. And people, people can be bought off with money in a minute. And I thought, well, if $100,000, if you took that, what if somebody offered you a few million just to step away from this case? Could that have happened? I don't know that it did. I can't say that it did. But it just makes you wonder. And so, I mean, this was a sad situation. I, I, I'm just hoping that everything works out in our behalf for him that uh because it was so unfair for him to do this to these families everybody we had enough to go through we didn't need a crooked attorney on top of it thank you so much thank you and you know uh i think about how even in one of the uh emails or letters or something when Mm -hmm. we were going back and forth uh toward the end right when he was complaining about 
family members. And yeah. he was complaining about uh, the fact that people were expressing, you know, how they felt. You know, yeah. it's like Demetrius's uh, son and daughter, you know, uh, issues in, that, that the kids are dealing with in school and that type of thing. And, uh, and he makes this off-the-cuff comment like, you know, people are expecting me to be uh, 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 their counselor and all this kind of I'm like, wow, that was pretty heartless. And it's weird, though, today when I was doing a little bit of research and I found this interview with him mm-hmm. on ABC when he was pushing his book, and and he was making reference to, you know, some of his high-profile clients or whatever. And he was just so calm. And he said, well, you know, sometimes you're a counselor to people. Sometimes you are a therapist. And, you know, you just have to do what you have to do in order to, you know, keep people on, on track. And, and I'm like, well, why didn't that same mentality and that same attitude apply to the IRP-6 exactly. and their family? And that sounds real good, but that's not really who he is. Exactly. Yeah. Good point, Lisa. Exactly. Good point. And, and when we did our research, you know, after things start falling apart, we're like, well, let's do research on some of his other clients. We found out Mike, Michael Jackson had gotten rid of him because he tried, to, he tried to do Michael Jackson's case at the same time as Scott Peterson. Well, Michael Jackson got rid of him. Scott Peterson is in prison for life. Um, you know, and you're like, okay, what did you do for him? And you, we found other complaints and people saying, you know, hey, he's a great guy when you start off, but as soon as he gets a high-profile client, he doesn't have anything to do with you. And that's what we found. I mean, everybody knows it's no secret that he's representing uh, Chris Brown. And, and when he's holding Chris Brown's hand, we can't get an answer. Good point. Holding hands. He, how many times did yeah. we hear that? No, I'm not, I'm I'm not, not holding anybody's hand. Well, anybody's you hand. seem to be... Everywhere Chris Brown, every time Chris Brown is in the news, there you are. And the thing is, we are not asking you to, we weren't asking you to hold our hand. All we're asking you to do is communicate. Communicate and file court documentation. If you were to file court documentation and wrote an email, hey, this was filed today, here's the proof. You would have gotten no no more no more queries from us. That's right. The only reason we were trying to get in touch with him was to find out when he was going to do something. Well, go out to our uh, website to find out more information about the press release that we put out on the uh, complaint that we filed with the California Bar Association against uh, Mark Garagos uh, in his handling of the IRP-6 case. We want to uh, ask that you keep the IRP-6 in your prayers. That's Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. Again, a shout-out to Attorney Gwendolyn Solomon. Uh, excellent work there on getting uh, the writ of cert uh, on the docket. And, and Lamont, you're going to have to help me out there. What's the right way to say it? Uh, so writ of certiorari was granted uh, by the Supreme Court. Thank you. And so we're going to keep you informed on that. Uh, uh, as far as other things we're asking for, uh, to call the Attorney General's office yes. regarding the missing transcript. Yes, we want everybody to call Eric Holder's office. If you have the ability, dial 202-514-2003 or 2005 and request, request that Eric Holder investigate the IRP-6 case and the transcript related to the Fifth Amendment violation. We need everyone's help to get this done. Absolutely. I want to say thank you to all of our guests tonight, to Joyce King and Ashley Marie Hong for joining us tonight and sharing their stories. Uh, everyone in the chat room and all of our callers, we appreciate you calling in and giving your uh, opinion and your comments and your questions. Also, to K&D Productions, Captain Kyle and Dustin Jackson helping out Ilsko's Girl in the Control Room. Without them, you would not hear what it is we have to say. To our production support team, they give us accurate and up-to-date information to make sure that we deliver that to you. And so we appreciate that. To the truth, we know you're out there. We heard from you tonight. We appreciate it. Olivia, Miss Barbara, Gloria, 
thanks for your support. Uh, uh, Andrew Craig of the Justice Integrity Project, thank you for the excellent article. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. For Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and Lamont Banks, I'm Sam Thurman. Good night, America. Good night. God love you. Good night. You are listening to the